And we are in uh, Romans chapter 1. And last week we started in verse 13 with the hopes of making it uh, as far as we could down through 17, but of course we only made it to the beginning of verse 16, which is uh, kind of what I expected would happen. So today we're going to pick it up with verse 16 and just look at verses 16 and 17. And I still have a little bit of apprehension about whether we'll get finished or not. Uh, As I mentioned last week, uh, one of the commentators says this is a theologically dense passage. And uh, so uh, we'll be uh, we'll be wrestling with some uh, pretty heavy stuff here. Uh, But these are. These are verses that I love. Uh, there, you know, as you go through Romans, there are a, a series of or a number of passages in Romans that are really exciting. And as we were talking about studying Romans, I some of those passages and verses are ones that I look forward to getting to uh, and talking about. And and these two verses uh, fall into that category, particularly. Of, of verses that I was very eager for us to spend time in because there's just uh, there's some really profound and cool stuff going on here in verses 16 and 17. So, but as I said last week, we started in verse 13, and uh, and we really got into the first phrase of verse 16. Uh, so, uh, just by way of review, what do you remember or some of the things that we talked about last week? Okay. Did he tell them why he hadn't gotten there? Okay. He hasn't told them why he hadn't come yet. What did he tell them? Okay. He told them he was hindered, but he didn't tell them what hindered him. But then he does go on to tell them something. Okay. Okay. Uh, so there again, he's explaining to them this is an imperative. This is something I really need to do. So as I put it last week, and it's kind of an awkward way of putting it, but I don't know any better way to put it, is he doesn't tell them why he didn't come, but he tells them quite emphatically what was not a reason for him not coming. Right? And what was that? What does he want him to know was not an obstacle to him coming? He was prevented. It wasn't because he didn't want to come. It was he was stopped. Okay, okay. Because he was not ashamed of the gospel. Because he was not ashamed of the gospel. Okay. The the temptation for the Romans would be, you know, he doesn't come and he doesn't come and he doesn't come. And the t- and when when somebody says they're going to do something, or when you expect somebody to do something, and they and it doesn't get done, and it doesn't get done, and it doesn't get done for a long period of time, what do you begin to do? Figure out the reasons. Yeah, you start trying to figure out the reasons, right? You start trying to presume and think through, okay, what's possibly keeping him or her from doing this thing that I'm expecting them to do or that they've told me they do, all right? So we begin to assign motives, okay? 
And one of the motives that Paul wanted to make sure they did not assign to him was the motive of fear. He, he, wanted, them to, he wanted them to understand that he had a strong sense of obligation or responsibility to them because they were in this class of people to whom he was obligated. What is that class of people? The Gentiles, okay? The barbarians and the, and the wise and all those who fall into the category of other than Jews, okay? So the Greeks and the Gentiles, and we talked about the use of the term Greek and the use of the term Gentile and how Paul uses them. Sometimes uh, the word Greek to refer to the Greeks specifically or the Hellenists, all those who spoke Greek and, and lived within the context of the Greek culture. And sometimes he uses the word Greek to refer to all the Gentiles. And he does it, and he does both things here in this passage uh, in 13 through uh, 17. He does both. At one point, he refers to the Greeks as a reference to the Hellenists, and he compares them against whom? The Greeks as opposed to the barbarians, okay, or the wise, or the wise in contrast to the foolish. And the reason he does that is because to the Greeks, everybody who was not a Hellenist, Everybody who did not imbibe of the Greek culture and speak Greek was considered to be illiterate and ignorant and stupid and barbaric. Okay, And so, uh, so he uses those two terms. So he refers to the Greeks and to the barbarians and he says he's under obligation to both. Now what he's speaking of here is, is his apostleship. And Paul considered himself as having an apostleship or mission or commission to reach the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. So although he did reach out to the Jews and he preached every time he went into a city, he went into the synagogues and he preached in the synagogues and he always made an effort to reach the Jews, he felt his apostleship was to the Gentiles, to both the Greeks and the barbarians, and the Romans fit into this category. So he has this sense of obligation and duty as well as an eagerness, he says, to come to Rome but he's been prevented so far and he won't even bother telling us until we get to chapter 15 what prevented him from coming. Okay? But what he wants them to know is that, is that I have not been hesitant to come because of any kind of fear or apprehension or shame that I have associated with the Gospel. Okay? And we talked about two things, two reasons why someone might be inclined to be ashamed and not bring the gospel to Rome. What were those two reasons? Okay. 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 Yeah, uh, the problem is we, with Rome here, we have this very sophisticated, uh, intellectual, academic, you know, center of the world. You know, this is where really the, the pinnacle of ideas and philosophy is gener being generated throughout the uh, Roman Empire, in addition to some of the localities in Greece like Athens and etc. But but Rome is Rome is kind of this pinnacle of of philosophy and ideas and sophistication and education and all that sort of thing, as well as political power and all those kind of things we talked about a couple of weeks ago about the city of Rome. So Rome represents all those things. 
And someone might be inclined to think, once Paul has not shown up in the city of Rome for lo these many years, that maybe he just isn't confident that the gospel can hold its own in that context. And so maybe the reason Paul isn't coming is because he's ashamed of the gospel. He doesn't feel it can hold its own in its struggle against all these other ideologies and ideas that present themselves in the city of Rome. Okay? But the other reason that I think is really more, more to the point is the wisdom of God is through us as a man. And to present that as a man, we have to humble ourselves. Okay? Okay. So the second one, uh, the second uh, issue, uh, as Jim mentioned, is the, the first being just can the gospel hold its own in this context? But the second, and I agree with Jim, I think this is really more of the issue, is what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he talks about the gospel, the preaching of the cross, is to Gentiles foolishness and to, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. That the message of the cross itself is just utter ludicrousness. Is that a word? <laughs> it's just absurdity in the context of the world. We talk about the term the scandal of the cross. Theologians talk about the scandal of the cross. The preaching of the cross was to the Jews a scandal. And to the Gentiles, it was utter madness. Okay? What is such utter madness to the Gentiles? What is such foolishness in this message of the cross that Paul talks about there in 1 Corinthians? Why was the preaching of the cross such utter foolishness to the Gentile mind? Okay, the resurrection, but even more than that. I mean, that gets pretty wild when you talk about somebody raising from the dead. But what else? Okay, okay. It's a shame, but it's a shame that's associated in the, in the Christian gospel. It's a shame that's associated with whom? With God, right? Okay, this is unthinkable to the Gentile mind that, that a God, any God, but certainly the God that the Christians claim to worship, the greatest God, the Creator God, the God who is the God above all gods, would stoop to be humiliated and shamed and disgraced and crucified naked upon a slave stick. Okay? This is just absolutely absurd. It's unthinkable that God would ever stoop to allow Himself to be crucified. And we talked about crucifixion and what crucifixion meant in the first century world. It, you know, it, it, it doesn't carry that connotation to us today. It's ironic that that we who uh, live within a Christian uh, uh, environment and, and, and in a society that has been dominated by Christian thought now for many, many hundreds, even a couple thousand years, that we don't understand the foolishness of the cross. As we were driving home from Wichita yesterday, last night, and we were coming through, uh, we were coming through Edmond, and I looked over there to the left, you know, and there's that huge lighted cross, you know, however tall it is, that was such a, you know, such a political uh, 
issue uh, several years ago when that church wanted to build that cross and of course people wanted to pose it and everything. But here's this big beautiful cross and we put crosses everywhere and we wear them around our neck and we put them on our Bibles and we put beautiful gilded crosses at the front of our churches and we build huge towers out along the highways of crosses. We put crosses everywhere and it doesn't dawn on us. For most of us, we have no sense of how ironic that is that the cross would be such an esteemed emblem today when when it first started it was such an emblem of disgrace and dishonor and shame and it was just absolutely unthinkable to the Gentile mind that any God would stoop to allow himself to be crucified and I, I have thought a lot, in, or I don't know a lot, but I've thought a number of times over the last several years about this issue of the scandal of the cross. And, and I have tried to imagine, is there anything, is there anything that, that I can think of today that is, that, that is associated with Christianity or associated with the Christian gospel that has the effect of utter folly and foolishness that the cross had in the first century. And I can't think of anything. When I think of the first century Christians being bold enough to say our God was crucified, and then I think of the things that caused me to hesitate to share the gospel or speak the cross, there's nothing. There's nothing that compares to the utter foolishness that that message represented in the first century that I can think of. Maybe there is some, but I can't think of anything that approaches it. Well, so to the Gentile mind, it was foolishness, utter madness. But he says to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. And as we mentioned, that word there is the word from which we get the word scandal. To the Jews, it was a scandal. So to the Jews, you have the dynamic of it being the utter foolishness that the Gentiles see. But in addition to that, it is scandalous. And why is it scandalous to the Jew? Okay, why is he considered blasphemous? Okay, but what is it about the cross? Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. So the Jew had this additional issue of the law stipulating that anyone hung on a tree is cursed. And so that you would have the audacity to stand there and tell them that Jesus was the Messiah and He was hung upon a cross is to say that the Messiah was cursed of God and this was absolutely scandalous to the Jew. And Paul says, none of that is an issue to me. I am not hesitant to preach the gospel in Rome. I'm not hesitant to preach the gospel anywhere, even though the gospel is utter madness to the Gentile and is a scandal to the Jew. I have no hesitation to preach this message. Now the question arises, why? Why is it that Paul has such liberty and freedom to go into this first century world and tell people about the Son of God who was hung upon a cross and humiliated and shamed and disgraced and cursed upon a cross. Why is it, what is it about the Gospel that 
that made it so that Paul was unashamed, so that he was willing to go into any environment, to an environment of the wise and the, and the educated and the erudite and the elite, and he had no hesitancy to preach this scandalous and foolish message to them, nor did he have any hesitancy to go and preach it in the most pagan and the most barbaric environments. He had confidence in the gospel so that he was not ashamed to preach it. Why was Paul not ashamed to preach the gospel? Verse 16. It is the power of God to salvation. This is the verses that we're looking at today. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for the reason being it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There he's using it in the sense of the Gentiles in contrast to the Jews. For in it, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It is the power of God to effect salvation in those who believe. So we have this remarkable reality that Paul is revealing to us. That the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, is in and of itself powerful. So that when that message is preached, and when that message is believed, and when that message has its, its power is released, what does it do? It saves people. Okay. Now, when we read this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the sense of how much power is at play there may escape us. But by the time we get through chapter 3, we're going to realize, wow, this gospel is powerful. Because in the next three chapter, rest of this chapter and in all of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3, we're going to be talking about the human predicament. We're going to be talking about man's being under the wrath of God. And we're going to talk about how wicked and how evil man is and how all of us fall into that category. Okay. And But Paul is stating at the outset, before he goes into all this ugly stuff we're going to look at for the next two and a half chapters, before he even goes into that, he's stating for the outset, at the outset, I've got an answer for that. And the answer for that is the message of the gospel, which in and of and by itself is powerful enough to save all these people I'm talking about in these chapters. You know, we read these chapters and it's very tempting for us to kind of cluck our tongue and, and kind of go shame, 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 you know, and just kind of write all those people off, forgetting that we're one of them, and to write all those people off. But Paul's point is the gospel is powerful enough to save even those people. Thankfully, because I'm one of them. So, the gospel, he says, is powerful. Now, when I was young and I was in my uh, early 20s or whatever, uh, it was it was very fashionable for Christians to talk about the gospel being dynamite. OK, and the reason we did that is because 
the Greek word that he uses here to, to uh, uh, that is translated powerful in our uh, or power in our uh, English Bibles here is also the Greek word from which we derive the word dynamite. Okay. And so, you know, it was very, uh, it was, it was fashionable for us as Christians to talk about the dynamite of the gospel. Well, uh, you know, that there's a little bit of exegetical weakness there in, in how we were handling the scripture. Uh, but it, but it still had its effect of reminding us of the power of the gospel. Now, the gospel is not dynamite. It doesn't blow things apart. It puts things together. Okay. But, but still, it's kind of an exciting thought to think of that kind of power. Okay. And, uh, and so it's, it's thrilling. It's thrilling to think about the fact that the, the gospel contains within its message, contains the, the dynamism, the power, the strength that is necessary to save people because we are really in a serious strait. We are really in a very serious predicament. As we will see in the very next verse, we are under the wrath of God. And, and so we need something powerful that will deliver us. And Paul says that the gospel message is powerful. Why is the gospel message powerful? What is it about the gospel message that's powerful? Okay, let's don't go there yet. No, I don't want to go there yet. We'll get there. Don't go there yet. Okay, it's it's powerful for salvation, but why? What is the message about? And and don't tell me the righteousness of God because I know that, and we'll get there in a second. But what is it about? It is about the work of the work of God, is it not? It is about the saving work of God in history. That's the message we preach. Okay, so the, the it's not just that the words are some kind of magical words that people get saved by hearing, but it's that the words represent something that God did in history. And 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 what God did in history. When that news about what God did in history is proclaimed to Jew, to Greek, and to barbarian, to wise, and to foolish, it has the potential to powerfully save them. So he says, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Now the question is, what does Paul mean when he says, when he refers to salvation? Well, it's a loaded term. Paul almost exclusively uses it to refer to spiritual salvation, not to some kind of material or physical salvation. It can be used in those terms. If you see somebody you're out the lake and you see somebody drowning, you go out and you save them. Okay? Paul does not typically use the word in that sense. But he uses it in reference to this spiritual work that God does in transforming lives and rescuing lives and, and delivering lives from, uh, from what they would otherwise face. Okay, that's how Paul typically uses the word. But in the context of Romans, I think there are at least two ideas that are loaded into this term. That when Paul says the power of God, the gospel is the power of God, Unto salvation, <clears throat> excuse me. 
there are at least a couple things as we go through the book of Romans we'll understand that Paul means. You may mean more than this, but there's at least these two. Okay? And the first one is one I've already alluded to. In the very next verse, in verse 18, we're going to be confronted with the wrath of God. Now, we're going to read a lot about the wrath of God. And we're going to find out in the next chapter or so that the wrath of God is not something that's way off in the distant future, but it is something that is already on man, and man is already experiencing the wrath of God. You were in your life, and I was in my life, and every person who does not know Christ is currently, now, presently, under and experiencing the wrath of God. And I'll show you how that works when we get into those verses. <clears throat> so it's not just way off in the distance, God's judgment someday, but God has already judged and, and, and the wrath is coming down and we are experiencing that or we were experiencing that. And one of the things that the power of God is sufficiently powerful, the gospel of God is sufficiently powerful to do is to deliver us out of that wrath. The other thing that, or at least another thing that this idea of salvation entails is the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, the preaching of the cross is sufficiently powerful to restore us to the glory of God. Remember Romans 3.23? All of sin and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know what all that means. But one of the things that's inherent in the preaching of the cross is that that situation is remedied. That we no longer fall short of God's glory. Okay? So, when Paul says that the, that the preaching of the cross is powerful unto salvation, at least a couple things he has in mind. One is that he's delivering us from the, from the just wrath of God upon us for our sin. And the second is that he is restoring us to the glory of God, whatever that means. Okay. We'll look at that when we get there. Okay. Now, there's probably a lot more that's entailed in this idea of salvation, but at least those two from the book of Romans, we can assume. Okay. So, the power of God, the gospel of God is powerful unto salvation for whom? Everyone who believes. Okay. Now, Paul sets out here right at the outset, and we will deliberate on this as we go through the book of Romans, that there is a condition for salvation and only one condition. It is the prerequisite for salvation. And Paul will belabor this point. It is faith. And so, if we want to go back and use our weak analogy, weak as it is, of dynamite... Okay, what is the fuse which sets off the dynamite of God's power? It's faith. Faith is the catalyst which actuates this power. So this power resides in the gospel. And when the gospel is preached, the power is there. It doesn't matter where it's preached or to whom it's preached. And it does not matter their response. The power is there. But the power is only actuated by faith. So you can preach the gospel to a crowd of people. And you can have two responses in this crowd of people. 
And we see this several times in the ministry of Paul where he will preach the gospel. And we see it at the end of Acts there when the Jews come to him in Rome and he preaches the gospel to them. And it says some believed and some didn't. (laughs) What it doesn't go on to say, but which we can infer from what Paul says here, is that for those who believed, the power of God was actuated and they were saved. And for those who did not believe, the power of God was not actuated and they were not saved. So, so it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And then he does this weird thing. What does he do? Okay. He's got this priority thing going on there. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, i.e. the Gentile, right? Okay. Now, you and I don't like this, right? Why? Because we're all a bunch of pagan Gentiles, right? Okay? We don't, you know, it makes us squirm. We don't like the idea that somebody gets in before we do or that somebody gets some kind of priority, okay? Well, whether we like it or not, it's the reality. It's the way God sovereignly and providentially worked in redemptive history. And there are two aspects, at least, that I see in which the Jew has priority. He has chronological priority, right? Okay. The gospel came first to whom? To the Jew, okay? And, and when I say the gospel, I don't mean Christ in the New Testament. I mean, you know, clear back there with Abraham, right? It started with Abraham. And God began to focus upon the Jews and He began to focus upon Abraham and Abraham's descendants and He put a great deal of focus and a great deal of emphasis on them, Okay? Why did God do that? Did He do that because God is racist? Okay. He wanted to show through a certain group of people His marvelous saving acts. And so He does that with the Jews first that they might become a light to the nations. He does it to the Jews first in order that they might become the example that all others look to and go, well, if He'll do it for them, He'll do it for me too. So they were chronologically, they had chronological priority. But they also had theological priority. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the entire Christian gospel, the entire Christian faith is rooted in the faith of the Jews. Right? It's rooted in the theology of Judaism. That's where our roots are. Okay. And this is important in the context of Rome, right? Because what we've all talked about in our introduction to Romans and this whole issue going on with the Jews being evicted and then coming back into Rome and then you've got a church that started out Jewish and is now a Gentile church and now you've got Jews coming back in and there's whole, this whole confusion. You know, where does all this fit? And Paul is simply saying... The Jews have theological priority. And what what he means by that is not we're going to go back and obey the law and do all that sort of stuff that the Jews did. But what he's saying is our faith is rooted in the Old Testament. And you cannot dismiss or disregard Old Testament if you want to be a thoroughgoing Christian. You cannot dismiss the Old Testament. It is vital. Now, we have to be discerning. 
in how we understand its application today and understand its application in a Gentile context. We've got to be discerning and we've got to be careful about that. And there's much to be weighed and much to be thought about. But what Paul is saying to these Gentiles in Rome is don't write, this whole, don't write that whole Old Testament thing off. Because if you write that whole Old Testament thing off, the, the, the core of this message will be gutted. And as we go through Romans, we're going to find Paul constantly going where? Back to what? The Old Testament. And when he gets to that classic argument of salvation by faith and by faith alone, where does he go? He goes to the Old Testament and he goes to Abraham and he spends the entire chapter 4 of Romans gleaning from this theological priority of the Jews the foundation of this idea or thought of salvation by faith. Okay, So that's simply what he means there when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, and then we come to verse 17. And verse 17, he's not getting emotional about verse 17. Verse 17 is a verse that has transformed the church. Verse 17 of Romans 1 has transformed the church because of its transforming impact on one particular man. Now, this particular guy was a revolutionary in the church. Now, he was only one of many. And uh, oftentimes, we give him all the credit for the Reformation, which is a serious mistake. The Reformation was well underway before Martin Luther uh, had his uh, had his heyday. Okay, so the Reformation was well underway, and there were many great lights of the Reformation before Martin Luther was ever born. Okay, but but Martin Luther was probably the man that we most associate with the Reformation because it was his life and his actions and his preaching and his testimony that really just finally made it just go wild throughout Europe. Okay? And so, don't give him too much credit, but let's be sure we give him the credit that is due. But when we think about the life of Martin Luther, he was not the kind of guy that you would normally think or associate with the glories of the gospel. Because it did not start well for Martin Luther. Okay? It did not start well. And I want to tell you, I want to read to you some of his own words about his encounter with Romans 117. Okay? This is what he says about his own experience with Romans 117. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach. Who does he sound like? Sound like Paul, doesn't he? <laughs> a Jew above Jew, Pharisee of Pharisees. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God and had an extremely disturbed conscience. We'll talk about this again when we get to Romans chapter 7. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punished sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. <laughs> 
and said, quote, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost for original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted. And so here we have this guy who by all testimony of everybody around him was an outstanding monk who outwardly lived in conformity to all the laws and rules of, of his monastery and of the Catholic faith and the Christian faith at the time. He was an outstanding example. But inwardly he knew what a wretch he was. And when he comes to Romans 1.17 and he sees that in the Gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, it didn't provoke in him any hope or goodness or idea of salvation. It just provoked in him a hatred of God. Because here is this righteous God that is revealed. And every time the Gospel is preached, what do I hear? I hear this righteousness of God thing. And I hear how righteous God is. And I know how wicked and how perverted I am and how I'm under His judgment for my sin. And I can never placate or satisfy this righteous God. And so He is just provoked to increasing degrees of anger. So much so that it made Him even deathly ill. And He almost died. But then something happened. And he goes on later to say, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who, is, who, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the Gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word. Righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul what was for me truly the gate to paradise. Our testimony isn't about one verse in the Bible. Well, what was, Paul, what was uh, Luther's problem? Well, as he came to Romans 1.17 and he reads about the righteousness of God, he viewed it or understood it as we typically understand the righteousness of God. When you think of the righteousness of God, what do you think of? Okay, holiness, unapproachable, okay. His, we, we think of his moral or ethical nature, right? We tend to think of, when we, whenever we hear the righteousness of God, whenever we hear the idea of righteousness, we think of, of uprightness and you know, conformity to, to what is right. And when, so when we talk about the righteousness of God, typically what we think about is this moral or ethical dimension, which is the nature of God. Now, I want to point out to you, when we talk about the righteousness of God, we are not talking about a God who lives according to some kind of external standard. Okay? 
When we talk about man being righteous, we talk about a man who lives in accordance with some kind of standard to which he conforms and he is right by that standard or he is justified. The word justified comes from the same word as righteous. Same root word, okay? He is justified or he is made righteous by living according to that standard. But that's not God. When we speak of the righteousness of God and we're talking about this moral or ethical dimension of God as well as the other things that come into play when we talk about the righteousness of God, we're talking about what God is. His nature. He is the standard. It's not that God looks outside of Himself to see what is right and then does it because He's good. It's that God is righteous. He is innately righteous. It is His nature. And so whenever we speak of the righteousness of God, we speak of that which is inherent to Him. Whatever we mean by this term righteousness of God, when we think of it, we are talking about something that God just simply is and He can be no other. It is His nature. Okay? But the question still remains, where did Luther go wrong with Romans 1.18 before? And what did he figure out that maybe we're missing when we come to Romans 17, excuse me, where Paul speaks of the righteousness of God, when he speaks of the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel? Well, the problem is, is that we oftentimes have a truncated view of the righteousness of God. We tend to think of this kind of moral, ethical dimension of God, and that is certainly inherent in the term. But what is so wonderful and fascinating is as you go back into the Old Testament, <laughs> remember the priority of the Jews, we go back into the Old Testament and we look at how the, the psalmist and how the Jewish prophets speak of the righteousness of God. And we understand that Paul here is speaking as a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one who is thoroughly trained and understands and speaks out of what he understands the Old Testament represents. When Paul is speaking of the righteousness of God, he's speaking of the righteousness of God as those old prophets thought of the righteousness of God and as the psalmist thought of the righteousness of God. And in addition to this idea of the moral attributes of God that we typically think of when we think of the righteousness of God, it's thrilling to find out what else they thought about the righteousness of God. You may have noticed in reading through the Psalms particularly and in some of the prophets that when you read about God's righteousness, you often read about it in association with his salvation. And oftentimes it seems like the words are used almost interchangeably. And sometimes the psalmist or one of the prophets will say, I will sing of his righteousness. I will sing of his salvation. Or in another place, God says, my, I forget exactly how he says it, but the idea of it is, my salvation is near, my righteousness is at hand. And so what we begin to understand is that in the mind of these old prophets and in the mind of the psalmist and in Paul's mind, the righteousness of God is closely associated with the idea of his saving acts. Now this gets pretty cool. <laughs> this gets pretty cool. Because when, 
when I think of the righteousness of God, I can sometimes fall into Luther's trap, you know, and think about this intimidating perfection to which I can never match. But, but the psalmist and the prophets, and they speak of the righteousness of God, oftentimes they're talking about God's righteousness coming, His salvation coming. And they're talking about, I'm going to sing of His righteousness, I'm going to sing of His salvation. And they just equate the two like they're one and the same. And so there is, there is something inherent in the term the righteousness of God which includes, among other things, the idea of His saving acts or His saving activity. Now, when we get to Romans and we first encounter this idea of the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17, we as Gentiles, we're not particularly tuned into that idea. But as we go through Romans, we're going to start picking that up that the righteousness of God is associated with His saving activity. Well, there's another dimension that comes out of the Old Testament view of the righteousness of God, which also comes out in Romans. And that is the idea that the righteousness of God is something which we can receive. It's something of which we can embody. It's something that's given to us and so the psalmist will on occasion speak of, of receiving God's righteousness. Or the prophets will speak of receiving God's righteousness. And oftentimes it's all mingled together with this whole idea of the saving act of God. So you have the saving act of God going on and mankind receiving the righteousness of God. So we have these two parallel thoughts of the righteousness of God that are in Paul's mind as he's saying the righteousness of God is revealed in the Gospel. The reason the, the reason the Gospel is powerful unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew, and the, the Jew first and also the Greek, the reason it's powerful is because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So now as we go through Romans, one of the things we're going to be discovering is that the righteousness of God is associated, in addition to some other things like God's wrath and judgment and things like that, that the righteousness of God is also associated with His saving activity. <laughs> Makes sense now, doesn't it? That in the Gospel, the saving activity of God is revealed. Okay, so we have the saving activity of God, but not only that, we have this idea of man somehow getting the righteousness of God. And this is what ignited Luther. This is what transformed Luther. When he realized that the righteousness of God was not something far off there, some holy standard, some impeccable morality to which he could never attain. But that it was actually something that was offered to him. It is a gift. And so as we go through Romans, in Romans chapter uh, 3 and in Romans chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 10, we're going to encounter this concept of, of what theologians call the imputed righteousness of God. Okay. Now, that's a theological term and you're going to hear it by other theologians uh, or by theologians, so I'm going to throw it out there so you know what he's talking about. Well, but what he's really talking about there He's talking about a verdict. It's a forensic term. It's a legal term. 
He's, he's talking about a verdict that was rendered. And here's where it begins to boggle the mind. I was born a sinner. It just was in my nature. You know? I mean, I held that little five-day-old girl yesterday, you know. And, I mean, she, you know, she, she's just sweet as she could be. But she's just as dynamic as she can be. And I wasn't showing yesterday, you know. It probably won't really reveal itself for maybe another day or two, you know. She looked pretty sweet. And she is my grandchild, so if anyone was born without a damning nature, probably my grandchild, right? But, but I have to confess that she is riddled with Adam. And I was riddled with Adam. And at the first opportunity I had, at the first time I heard the law say, don't do something, I chose to do it. Because I am a descendant of Adam. Because I am an enemy of God. Because I am a hater of God. And so I hated God and I despised God. And even as a little child, I rebelled against Him and I was a sinner through and through. But then the day came when I got saved. And the day I got saved, the next day, you know what? I was a sinner. I was a sinner. And I rebelled against God. And I lied to God. And I disobeyed God. But I went on and I grew in my Christian faith and I grew in my understanding of Scripture and I got to where I am today. And you know what? Today I am a sinner. I lie to God. I deny Him. I spit in His face. I refuse to do the things He tells me to do and I do the things He tells me not to. I am a sinner. And as a sinner, I have come before the bar of God's justice. I have stood before the bar of God's justice and I am a sinner through and through. Unless you skate through this, you guys are too. You all are. And I'm talking about me, but you just envision yourself. I'm standing there before the bar of God's justice. And all the evidence has been presented. And the mallet is about to come down and make a declaration, give a verdict on me and my life. And the mallet hits the bar of justice and the voice of God says righteous. That's imputed righteousness. And the theologians are around that big fancy term imputed. You just think about that. It's a verdict that God has rendered. One commentator one commentator was puzzling over this, wrestling with uh, a guy by the name of Douglas Moo. He's written a great commentary. Uh, very thorough, very academic, very uh, very well-respected commentary. And he was talking about it. He was asking the question, you know, which we have to ask. How could that be righteous? How could that verdict be righteous? 
Well, it's righteous because there's more to the story than my sin. (laughs) And so you have this very sophisticated theologian writing a very sophisticated commentary. And down in the footnote, he says, it's like the Chronicles of Narnia. (laughs) He says, it's like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. When the witch thinks that she has killed Aslan, because he has offered himself as a sacrifice for... Was it Edmund? Is that right? Edmund, I think, was the bad guy, bad kid. And, and he did the bad stuff. And so the witch was going to kill him. And Aslan steps in and he says, I'll be the sacrifice. And Aslan gets off. Or Edmund gets off. But Aslan then is killed. And then the next day they come back and Aslan's back alive again. And the witch is outraged. And they simply explain to her that she didn't understand the deeper magic. And move wrestling with the complexity and the difficulty of this concept that God, the righteous God, in a righteous verdict, has declared me, a sinner, righteous, says, well, just think about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. There's a deeper magic going on, folks. There's, there's, there's other facts going on. There's more to the story than my sin. And that's what Romans is about. Romans is about the rest of the story. How can a righteous God who is not righteous by conformity to an external standard, but who is just simply righteous, He is righteous. He is the standard. How is it that He could look at Rick Harvey, this despicable, horrible sinner and hater of God, and say, Rick is righteous? Well, the righteousness of God is revealed in the Gospel, He says. How? by faith. It is revealed, he says, from faith to faith. And now I begin to understand that the gospel does not, this righteousness of God is not revealed to everybody in the gospel. This saving act of God which declares sinners righteous, forensically, legally declares us to be righteous, does not appear to everyone who hears the gospel. It only appears to those who believe. It is striking to me, going back to this idea of the power of the gospel, that when Paul says that he is not ashamed because the, because the gospel is powerful unto salvation to everyone who believes, that Paul is not saying that he has confidence that the gospel will change Rome. He's saying, I have confidence that the gospel will change Romans. And there's a difference. I cannot promise to you if we preach the cross, I cannot promise to you if we preach the gospel, if we hold to the truth of the gospel, that our society, our culture, our community, or even our families will be saved. I can only promise you that whoever hears that gospel and believes will be saved. And there are many examples where the gospel has come into a, into a village or community or a city or, or a region or a nation or even a civilization and transformed it powerfully. 
but it only done so because it's transformed individuals. And there are many other examples where the gospel has come into a village or a city or a region or a state or a nation or a civilization and it has not transformed it, though many within have been saved. And the determining factor is faith. Paul says it is revealed from faith to faith. Anybody want to venture on that one? Okay. I could I could probably give you a half a dozen or more interpretations of what that means from faith to faith. And I have got to admit to you, earlier this week I was praying about that and I was saying, God Yeah, I I know commentators have all kinds of ideas about what that means. Good men, great men, men who love God have different ideas about what that means. But would you show me what it means? You know? And within two or three minutes, I went, oh, I got it. And about 24 hours later, I went, no, it's this. <laughs> I went, well, thank you, Lord, that you showed me it's this. And then as I was in the shower this morning, <laughs> I went, well, maybe not that or that. Maybe it's this because this yeah so you know a couple of main ideas are the idea and and there's a good argument from this from the context (coughs) that the idea is that it is it is as the gospel is preached by men who have confidence in the gospel who believe the gospel Paul not ashamed of the gospel it's the power of God and salvation confident as he goes into Rome as he preaches it to people of faith the righteousness of God will be revealed. The saving act of God in declaring righteous people righteous will be revealed. It's a great argument. <clears throat> I could almost buy it. Except I got a couple other good ones. <laughs> yeah. and, and another one is there are several places where Scripture talks about things like from glory to glory or you know, from faith to faith or from evil to evil, etc., etc. And the and the idea seems to be, there's one or two ideas there. One is the idea of a progression. Okay. But the other idea that comes out in these kind of statements like this is the idea of certitude, absoluteness. Okay. So maybe what he's saying here is, maybe he's saying when he says faith to faith, it's from the faith of the preacher to the faith of the listener. Except that, there are examples of people getting saved where the preacher hadn't believed yet. John Wesley's a good example. Okay, so so okay, maybe not that, but but maybe maybe the idea that Paul is stressing here is that there is a progression that as we live our lives in faith progressively, the righteousness of God is revealed more and more in our lives. We see more of this saving activity of God, and it's and its power in our lives. Great argument. and I like that. Or maybe maybe it's just the idea and some commentators come down on this. Maybe it's just the idea of Paul saying it's just faith and nothing but faith. That's what he means. It's just faith, folks. Absolutely faith and nothing else. It's just all faith. From faith to faith. Period. That's it. Okay. Well, you can pick and choose. I'm still groping. I don't know the answer to that question. 
But I do know one thing that Paul goes back to Habakkuk in chapter 2 and verse 4 and he says, for the scripture is it's what's written in the scripture, the righteous man shall live by faith or as many translators prefer it, the man who is righteous by faith shall live. And we have old Habakkuk back there and he's, he's in that context where God is judging the nation of Israel and He's punishing the nation of Israel for its sin. And He's doing so with these pagan nations, particularly the Chaldeans. And they're coming in and they're overwhelming uh, the Jews and they're destroying and they're plundering and they're doing all this. And it's all part of God's judgment against Israel for their sin. And Habakkuk is just pulling his hair and he's going, God, how can you do this? And, you know, and, and, he, and he's just freaking out. And God comes to him in chapter 2 and he says, the man who is righteous by faith will live. Paul's saying, what I'm about to tell you in the book of Romans is nothing new. It is this. That God's saving activity of declaring people who are sinners to be righteous is revealed in the gospel to everyone who hears and believes that gospel. And so, like the hymn writer, I say, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Now, I want you to remember these two verses, folks. Next week, we start on the very next phrase, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And we're going to talk an awful lot about Man's terrible predicament. But I want you to remember, anybody that's in that predicament has the promise of Romans 1, 16 and 17. Okay? Next week we'll go on.